Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. Satchmo, Pops, Louis. Louis Armstrong had many nicknames and one indelible influence on, well, sure, jazz, but really all of American popular culture. Here in studio to talk about it is Ricky Riccardi. He's the Director of Research Collections at the Louis Armstrong House Museum in New York, and he's the author of What a Wonderful World, The Magic of Louis Armstrong's Later Years. But he's in, talk, he's in town today to talk about Louis Armstrong's groundbreaking early recordings. Tonight at Jazz St. Louis, there'll be some live performances as part of that. Ricky Riccardi, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So, so tell us what period of Louis Armstrong's career will you be uh, focusing on tonight? Tonight will be the groundbreaking work, uh, the recordings he made with his studio bands, the Hot Fives, the Hot Sevens, between 1925 and 1928. Uh, I don't think it's hyperbole to say these are the most important and influential recordings in, you could say, the history of jazz. I would say the history of uh, American pop music, to kind of write the rules for everything that follows, how to take a solo, how to how to swing, how to sing, how to scat. It's all on these records. Let's put that era in context of his life up to that point. Sure. How old was he when he was doing all this? The first Hot Five record was made November 1925. So Armstrong was 24 years old. It was his first record under his own name. Uh, he began recording in 1923, but always as a sideman. Uh, his hero was King Oliver, a great cornetist from New Orleans. He recorded with the Oliver Band in 23. Then he moved to New York in 24, Spent a year recording with uh, Fletcher Henderson and his orchestra, with Bessie Smith, with Clarence Williams, with Sidney Bechet. Uh, every time he appeared on a record, it sold more copies, but nobody knew who he was. His name was never on the labels. And uh, yeah, the ironic part now is that nobody really wanted him to sing. <laughs> they took one listen to his kind of gravel voice, and uh, his, his leader at the time, Fletcher Henderson, did, you know, thought that was way too lowbrow, did not want Armstrong to sing, never really encouraged him. So Armstrong, his wife at the time, was a pianist named Lillian Harden. Uh, to me, she is the architect of Armstrong's entire career. She kind of pushes him out of his comfort zone. And so she actually made him quit Fletcher Henderson's band in New York, come to Chicago, join her band. His first night with her band, she has a big sign out there, come here, the world's greatest cornetist, <laughs> which, yeah, no one knew his name. And so, yeah, that kind of put him, yeah, he was a little embarrassed by that, but all of a sudden it drew a buzz. And OK Records, they were the main, uh, what they used to call race records, records aimed at urban markets, uh, the black community, blues records, all that stuff. They had been recording Armstrong as a sideman in New York, but they got wind that he was coming back to Chicago. They decided to give him his own, you know, he could do whatever he wanted in the studio. We're going to start a new series of records. What does Armstrong do? He actually goes back to his elders in New Orleans. He hires Kid Ory on trombone, Johnny Dodds on clarinet, Johnny St. Cyr on banjo. These were musicians he had played with for years, and they begin... This series of records, uh, if you asked Armstrong, he was always very clear to say that they never set out to change history. They just wanted to make some money. <laughs> you mm, know, that's, mm. you know they, they were not there saying, we are consciously innovating and nothing will ever be the same. Yeah, this was a, it was a fun gig. Yeah, it was him and his friends getting to make some music, getting paid a little extra money. And I don't think any of them uh, could have foreseen the impact this music would have. Well, well, help me understand the force that these early recordings had, these recordings with the Hot Five and the Hot Seven. Yeah. This, these were the early days of jazz. So what did most jazz sound like at the time, and how was this stuff different? Most jazz, uh, like the New Orleans style of jazz, was primarily ensemble-oriented. So you would have a trumpet, trombone, clarinet. That was the front line. And they're pretty much improvising it all at the same time. 
there would occasionally be breaks where the whole band would stop and maybe one musician would improvise for about four bars. But it's really, it's that real New Orleans sound, which is still so popular down there. Uh, and that was it. And Armstrong, he comes up through that on the Hot Five, Hot Sevens. You still hear that ensemble sound almost at the height of its uh, of achievement. But Armstrong t- starts taking more solos, longer solos, 16-bar solos, 32-bar solos. And in these solos, all of a sudden, you hear him writing the vocabulary. And again, I keep saying bigger than jazz, more than just jazz solos. I'm talking about it could be Chuck Berry in the 50s. It could be Jimi Hendrix in the 60s. Anybody kind of taking these improvised solos, they're using the language, the foundation that Armstrong uh, sets forth on these mid-20s recordings. So by 1927 and 28, that New Orleans sound is being phased out. And all of a sudden, jazz becomes, you know, if you think of jazz today and you think of a soloist standing in front of a rhythm section, eyes closed, you know, really in the moment, improvising, uh, these recordings transform jazz from that ensemble music into really a soloist's art form. Let's listen to some of this music. Sure. (laughs) This is a song called Potato Head Blues. It has one of the most famous solos in the history of jazz. Yep. What what should we be listening for? Oh, this, I mean, like I said, Armstrong's solo here. It's a stop time solo, which means the whole band drops out. They only accent the first beat of every four bars. So Armstrong is kind of just floating above it all. Uh, But just listen to how conversational his solo is, how loose it is. Swinging is the word we always use in jazz. Uh, every note of it tells a story. Musicians who were really learning how to improvise back then, they would approach Armstrong for advice, and he would talk about how you always have to tell a story. And there's something so fresh and engaging. You could play the solo tonight, and it would still sound you know, just as fresh and just as engaging in 2019 as it did in 1927. All right, let's hear some of Potato Head Blues. So we're both just looking <laughs> off into the middle distance, having a moment during that. <laughs> yeah. what, what, what goes through your head when you hear oh, that? Oh, I mean, I've probably heard that 10,000 times. and it Does never, it get old? <laughs> no, never, 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 never. That's why I said it's still so fresh. Um, and then at the end there, you hear that New Orleans sound kick in. The clarinet comes in, the trombone comes in, there's the tuba, Pete Briggs anchoring the whole thing. It's just the sound of joy. Uh, but your mind keeps remembering that solo. It's just like, how does that come out of the mind? So loose, so natural. Um, and like I said, 
what he's doing there is still what is being taught in jazz universities. And yeah, that's still still how you approach improv- improvisation to this day. Did Potato Head Blues become one of those standards that successive generations of players would take a crack at? In in this field of music, I mean, the traditional jazz, some people call it Dixieland, some people call it you know hot jazz. Um, Potato Head Blues is kind of one of the, the gold standards. Actually, not many people have, I think, attempted to try that one because I think if Armstrong had such a definitive statement, it's like, well, you know, what, how can you improve on that? But a lot of the recordings that the Hot Fives and Hot Sevens made, West End Blues, Muskrat Ramble, uh, I could just name you know, Wild Man Blues, there's so many, Monday Date, uh, they are really still kind of the, the core repertoire for this traditional jazz scene. So what was the cultural impact of that recording we just heard and, and others like it? Well, OK Records, they were aiming these these records. I mentioned they were called race records. So they were aimed at the black community, and they were obviously very popular in cities, in Chicago and St. Louis and New York, places like that. But I don't think OK even realized themselves how popular Armstrong also would be with white fans, white mm-hmm. musicians, even Europeans. Uh, at the Louis Armstrong House Museum, we have a scrapbook that Armstrong compiled in the mid-1920s. And there was a letter from September 1926 from OK Records sending him a catalog, the Italian catalog for OK Records had Armstrong on the cover. And it came with a letter saying, I thought Lewis would want to see this, how popular he is over in Europe. And so white musicians are grabbing onto this music. You know, black musicians are grabbing onto this music. It's really kind of exploding. Potato Blues in 27, by 28, uh, Armstrong has a new producer for OK named Tommy Rockwell. And Rockwell realizes, you know what? We've been kind of selling this guy short. You know, we're aiming him at this you know, target urban audience. This guy is, you know, he's making this music for the world. And so they begin to shift. They take him from the race record side. They move him over to the, uh, the pop label on OK, their pop series. And all of a sudden you see it starting in 1929, Armstrong becomes the superstar that we all know and love. But all that that groundwork is happening with these hot fives and hot sevens. I'm talking with Louis Armstrong expert Ricky Riccardi. He's in town this week for an event at Jazz St. Louis tonight that is celebrating Louis Armstrong's hot fives and hot sevens, uh, some of his most loved, some of his great early work. And there's a performance that's part of that event tonight. Was Louis Armstrong the first black superstar in American popular culture? Oh, I say without a doubt. I mean, there's, yeah, obviously so many black figures, Bill Bojangles Robinson, uh, Burt Williams, you can run down the list, even in the jazz world, Duke Ellington and everything. But Armstrong had a global impact. Uh, we're beginning in the early 30s when he would go over to Europe. Yeah, he went to Denmark for the first time in October 1933, and 10,000 people were waiting for him. And then he went to Sweden, he went to England, he just like mobbed like a hero. And more than just being a great musician, you know, he's got hit records on the charts in five different decades. He appears in 30 films. He's on the radio. He's on TV. He publishes two autobiographies. Uh, he was in a Broadway production in 1939. He is a complete multimedia superstar. And it's this weird thing where you get this level of genius, but he also remains completely accessible, which mm. you know, doesn't always happen. Yeah, you know, a lot of times with geniuses, they're playing at such a high level. They're playing such demanding music that yeah, it takes a while before they get appreciated. It takes a while. Sometimes the public never even comes around because they think, oh, that's that's over my head. Armstrong, you know, the hippest guy in the room to the squarest guy in the room, they would all get something out of Louis Armstrong. And uh, it's just amazing. Where, where are you on that <laughs> spectrum, Ricky? 
I just think I'm <laughs> I'm in the middle. <laughs> I'll split the difference. You're with the academics. You're with the. Oh, no, oh, you're a musician as well. Though. I am. Yeah. No. Uh, I try to I try to get away from academia. I don't want to get anybody upset. But uh, yeah, there's there's a, a you know, people sometimes try to place Armstrong in these different kinds of boxes, you will. And you know, he never viewed his music that way. He was he was the man of the people. He wanted his music to be loved and appreciated by everybody. Yeah. Well, later in his career, Louis Armstrong's vocals became a yeah. big part of his persona, his musical persona. But even on one of these early tracks, he pretty much invents scat singing one day in the studio. Was that something he had been rehearsing and carefully brought into the studio? No, with yeah, this is one of the great Armstrong stories. We don't know how true it is, but it's so great. I'm going to tell it anyway. And I, I do think there's a more than a kernel of truth because to me, the glory of Armstrong, uh, there's been a thousand great instrumentalists and thousands of great singers, but Armstrong is actually equally influential as a singer, which a lot of people, they hear the gravel voice, they hear what a wonderful world, and they kind of take it lightly. But his concept of singing in the 20s just was so revolutionary that even if he never picked up the trumpet, he would be just as influential as a vocalist. So he was always careful to mention that growing up in New Orleans, he sang before he even picked up the horns. The singing is a big part of his childhood, and now he gets to... Uh, to make these records. I mentioned Fletcher Henderson wouldn't let him sing. King Oliver wouldn't let him sing. And this this miffed him for the rest of his life. He would say, they had a million dollar talent in their band, but they never encouraged me. They would never take advantage of. So now he gets to make these records, boom, immediately. The first thing you hear on the first released record, Gut Bucket Blues, you hear his voice, you hear his personality. So in February 26, 1926, he's going to record a song called Heebie Jeebies, written by a violinist named Boyd Atkins. It was supposed to be an instrumental OK Records, the man, uh, the kind of the producer, his name is E.A. Fern, he wanted Armstrong to sing something. Armstrong hadn't planned on it, so he sits down, he writes out some rudimentary lyrics, he goes to record. Now, these are the days, you know, no microphones. It's acoustic recording. They've got a horn sticking out of the wall. There's no Pro Tools. There's no post-production. If you mess up, you have to live with it for the rest of your life. So Armstrong is singing heebie-jeebies in the middle of it he drops the piece of paper with the lyrics and he kind of looks behind the glass and ea fern is like keep going keep going so armstrong remembered when he was a kid in new orleans they used to do this thing they had no word for it but they would use their voices they would imitate instruments he does it on the record the rest of the record's a little bit of a train wreck and when they finished armstrong figured well we'll just try it again but fern came out and goes you know what we're going to take a chance on that one uh, I guess one of Armstrong's nonsense syllables kind of sounded like the word scat. So boom, yeah, the marketing department kicks in. Here, the new scat sensation. And this record alone really puts scat singing on the map. Why don't we uh, listen to a little bit of Louis Armstrong and Heebie Jeebies? listening to Louis Armstrong saying heebie-jeebies and it looks like you can hardly contain yourself. Oh, Ricky. it's great. I mean, the, the scat is the is the main event of that, that vocal, but even at the end, he yells, sweet mama, 
Nobody's yelling Sweet Mama 1926. You don't find that in pop music singing. So he kind of breaks all the rules and eventually they start giving him songs in English. He's, he's able to start singing I Can't Give You Anything But Love and Ain't Misbehaving and, and like all these future standards. And whether it's Frank Sinatra, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Tony Bennett, anybody who sings this kind of music, uh, they're all coming from Armstrong, Bing Crosby, on and on and on. Hmm. And we're talking about Louis Armstrong with uh, Ricky Riccardi. He's speaking tonight at 7 p.m. at Jazz St. Louis. That's part of the Whitaker Jazz Speak Series. And what's going to happen? You'll, you'll, you'll do some talking and then there'll I've, be some playing. Right? That's, I've got 45 minutes um, to talk about the impact of the Hot Fives and Hot Sevens. So we're going to play a lot of music. We're going to cover it from a lot of angles, have a lot of fun. Uh, if you've never heard this music, uh, you'll be in for a life-changing moment. If you have heard it, uh, I'll try to attack it from a few different angles and have some surprises there. And then the glory of live music, to hear Armstrong's music played by some, some wonderful musicians. Uh, it'll be a night you, can't, you shouldn't miss. And as Armstrong got even more broadly popular in the 1950s, 1960s, he had hits like Hello, Dolly, right. What a Wonderful World. How did younger jazz players and fans view him at that point? At that point, there's this kind of break. Uh, it starts actually in the mid-40s. In, in beginning around 45 or so, uh, bebop starts springing out. This is the new form of modern jazz. Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, all geniuses. Uh, Gillespie was a gifted comedian, uh, but the rest of them, they really wanted their music to speak for itself. And Charlie Parker did everything he could not to you know, have to be an entertainer. Miles never wanted to be an entertainer. So they started viewing Armstrong as out of date because Armstrong came from a generation where you could not just make a living by being a great musician. You needed to be a singer. You needed to dance. You needed to do comedy. And so Armstrong was very proud that he was kind of a five-tool player, that he can do all this stuff every night. But as the generations were changing, all of a sudden, yeah, Dizzy Gillespie is actually the, the most vocal. He calls Armstrong a plantation character. He calls Armstrong an hmm. Uncle Tom. And beginning in the late 40s, there's this break where Armstrong's popularity gets bigger and bigger and bigger each passing year. But jazz's popularity kind of diminishes with each passing year, and they kind of stop paying attention to Armstrong. And I feel like it's still prevailing. I go to a lot of uh, jazz colleges, universities. I speak to a lot of students. And even in most studies, uh, jazz kind of begins with Charlie Parker. They figure, like, that is the guy who really wrote the rules, and everything that came before Charlie Parker is kind of this old-timey stuff. So I've been very fortunate. I've taught a few courses on Armstrong, uh, people still respond. When they hear Armstrong in the 20s, when they hear Armstrong in the 50s, they still respond. But I'm kind of on this crusade now to get more people to pay attention to the whole man's career because you know, once a genius, always a genius. It's not like he woke up one day and, and, and lost that knack. You know, to me, my first book is all about shining the light on Armstrong's last 25 years because I think the music he makes there is some of the most challenging and inspirational of his entire career. And I've uh, been very fortunate to see it kind of get rediscovered in, in recent years. So I personally think we're kind of at the beginning of the Armstrong Renaissance. I think, you know, have me back here in 50 years, and I think everybody will know, oh, of course, you know, Louis Armstrong's one of, the, uh, one of the greats. We'll look at our calendars in a moment. <laughs> I'm so, wide open right so, now. So Arms, you're, you're free in 50 years <laughs> I from am. today. I have a lunch. Okay. But we'll after find that, some time we in the after. <laughs> so, so, so Louis Armstrong revolutionized jazz in his 20s. And then lived long enough to become the old guard yeah. that the latest revolutionaries wanted to overthrow, musically speaking. Pretty much. And the interesting thing is Armstrong, like I said earlier, how he wanted his music to kind of speak to everybody. He understood what the modern jazz musicians were doing. We have his entire record collection up at Queens College. 
He's got Miles Davis. He has Charlie Parker. He has Monk. He has uh, the Jazz Messengers. He's got Charlie Parker with strings, Dizzy in South America, Miles Porgy and Bess. He's he was listening. a voracious record collector. Oh, right? my God. He listened to everything. So he understood it. There's multiple interviews where he gives, where he goes, that's, that's music that the untrained ear cannot understand. So he understood it. I mean, without his innovations, there wouldn't be any of that, of that music. But he was very careful uh, to make sure his music was always accessible. And so that's where kind of the break comes in, where they think he's just out of date and they have to overthrow him. And he's kind of warning them. It's like, listen, you know, you're going to lose your audience. And um, in some ways, you know, he's kind of right. I mean, I'm, I'm a jazz man. I have a master's in jazz history and research. I support jazz. I love everything that's to do with jazz. But, you know, watching it kind of turn into like a niche music, turn into an art music, mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, Armstrong was kind of writing these rules early in his career, you know, providing an example of how you can play at the top level virtuosity, you know, stuff that cannot be duplicated, but also do it in a way that, you know, makes it fun for everybody and makes it accessible for everybody. I said, like I said earlier, Dizzy had that too, but a lot of people kind of lose that. So uh, I think the more people discover about Armstrong, the more it'll help their music, their presentation. I once taught a course on Armstrong to jazz majors, performance majors at Queens College, and I played a live recording. And one student said what knocked him out about the recording was Armstrong, the way he spoke to the audience, him saying, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. And like this kind of like way of just like addressing the audience. He said, that's gone. He goes, you can go to the, the hippest jazz club in New York and people, they don't, the musicians don't even know how to talk to the audience anymore. So end of the line, study Louis Armstrong. You can't lose. Thanks, Ricky Riccardi. <laughs> You'll be talking about all this and a little bit more tonight at Jazz St. Louis. And that's it for us today. Tomorrow on St. Louis on the Air, we'll focus on the millennial generation, their experiences, the misconceptions about them, and are they tired of having everything blamed on them? And we'll talk with Webster University's Nicole Miller-Strutman. She's a leading bee expert. She was also recently named a top science educator. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicreader.org. You can get the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.